A couple of months ago, I did a show on antidepressants. In that episode, I presented research that indicates that not only do antidepressants have many scary side effects, but that they also don't really work better than placebos. The biggest takeaway I had from my research doing that show wasn't really either of those, though. It was that the entire theory, and I emphasize the word theory, of low serotonin causing depression has been debunked. Not by people like me on the alternative side, but by actual pharmaceutical research and medical research that has been done over and over again showing that that hypothesis was false. In the FDA approval process, drugs are meant to be proven effective against certain markers. In the case of SSRIs, that marker is serotonin. But what if serotonin isn't even the problem? Does a drug that works, meaning it does what it's intended to do, does that drug matter if it doesn't actually reduce depression but only increases serotonin? Let's talk about a different class of drugs now, statin drugs. Statins are determined effective if they reduce LDL or bad cholesterol. If a drug can effectively do this, then it is considered a useful drug and is approved for consumer use. But what if cholesterol isn't what causes heart disease in the first place? What if two people of the same age from the same town at the same body weight have a heart attack, but one of those people has total cholesterol of 150 and the other has cholesterol of, say, 300? Then was it the cholesterol that caused the heart attack? Or is it possible that the cholesterol level of 150 is actually too low and that that person had a heart attack because of that? What if that were the case? What if cholesterol has little to do with heart disease at all? I had a customer at Vitality Nutrition tell me the other day that his doctor is refusing to see him anymore because he won't take a statin. This man has cholesterol that is just at 225. I'm not a doctor, but I can read research, and 225, according to the research I've seen, isn't a problem at all. But the medical standard is 200. And so if you're not there, then you're considered to have high cholesterol and be at risk for heart disease. But what if his doctor's wrong about cholesterol in the first place? On today's episode of Vitality Radio, I will share the research on many of the most commonly prescribed classes of drugs by medical specialists as first lines of defense. And I'll explain why I believe they are dangerous with evidence to back up my statements. There will also be a part two to this episode, one today and one within the next couple of weeks. On, next, on the next episode, the part two, I'll give my recommended alternatives to these medications. Of course, I'm not your doctor and none of this is medical advice. I'm not licensed to give medical advice. This is for informational purposes only. Here goes. Let's start with cardiology. Maybe my favorite things to read online are doctors trying to dispel quote-unquote myths about pharma drugs. One doctor I read just today while I was preparing for this show said a common myth about statin drugs is that they're making pharma companies rich. He said that's absolutely not true because most of those drugs are cheap generics now. Interesting, Doc, because according to the British Medical Journal, as of 2020, statin drugs as a category had reaped sales of nearly $1 trillion. Nope, nobody's getting rich on $1 trillion, right, Doc? Even if you spread it around to all the drug companies, that's a lot of money. This brings up a point I want to reiterate. If you took that doctor at his word, you would jump at the chance to be on a statin because his word states that statins are safe and effective, that they're now cheap generics, so they're not making anybody any money, and there's absolutely no motivation from pharma or doctors to prescribe these drugs other than to help you. And so you might think, oh, well, yeah, this doctor's done the research. I should follow his lead. Or you may feel the same way about your own doctor. But if you were to listen to me, you'll come up with a very, very different viewpoint. And then the question is always, who's right? Is it the doctor? Is it the health food store guy? I mean, the doctor has a degree. He went through years of grueling medical school and 
medical practice and the health food store guy has a bunch of information about vitamins and minerals and herbs and he sounds pretty smart on the radio, but he's not a doctor. So which one is right? Well, the truth is we both have conflicts of interest. He's a doctor and he wants you to take statins. He wants to prescribe those for various reasons that doctors like to prescribe drugs to their patients. And I would anticipate in most cases that is because the doctor believes it's the best course of action for the patient. I'm a health food store owner who wants to sell you natural supplements as alternatives to pharma drugs. Why? Because I believe that they are a better and safer approach, but both of us stand to profit from the information that we share. So who is right? I long since gave up on the concept of right and wrong, because right and wrong is really just a matter of perception. He may actually believe what he's telling you. He reads medical journals, or at least I hope he does, and I believe what I'm telling you, and I read medical journals, but what he chooses to look at may be different than what I choose to focus on. He has pharma reps coming to tell him how he can magically solve patients' problems with their drugs. I have supplement reps coming in to tell me how great their stuff is too. So this is how I do it. Because I know that I am biased. We all are. So we have to look at both sides if we're going to get the full picture. And that's what I do. I look at both sides. I look at the studies that support, let's just say statins since we're talking about, and then I look at studies that call out questions about statins. And then I just simply make up my mind as to which I believe has more evidence. It's really simple. In fact, I've got this Vitality Radio listeners community, which is my favorite neighborhood to hang out in by far. Uh, these are wonderful, amazing people, and I would highly, highly recommend you join the community on Facebook. The link will be in the uh, doc or in the description below here on your podcast app. And if you're listening on the radio and you're having a hard time finding the Facebook community, just call us at Vitality Nutrition and we'll get you taken care of. 801-292-6662. Or you can hit me up on Facebook personally, or you can leave a message on the Vitality Radio Facebook page or on Instagram. We're not that hard to find, so we'll, we'll help you figure out where to go. But remember, as I said, I'm biased, you're biased, we all have our points of view, we all have our perspective and our perceptions based on what we can see, and in many cases, what we choose to see. And I believe that right and wrong is based on perception. That particular doctor probably is a good individual giving you his best answer to the questions that you have I believe that I am also a good individual doing the same thing. But again, because of our bias, you, the buyer, so to speak, must be the one who is paying attention to what's being said and ultimately gets to decide if this stuff passes the smell test. So I have this alternative viewpoint. I like to share it because I believe that there are lots of options in mainstream media, on social media, coming from the NIH and the CDC and the World Health Organization and your local news that basically tell you that what modern medicine is coming up with and recommending is good, safe, and effective. And I'm telling you that I disagree with many of the things that they teach, and therefore I have this show so that I can at least put forward what I believe is worth you lending your ear to. So I said, it's got to pass the smell test. And, and I really believe that because we have to recognize that we do have our own bias. And I have to recognize that I am in the business of selling supplements. And I talk about supplements on this show. And you need to realize that I'm in the business of selling supplements. And I talk about supplements on this show. So you should never just listen to me and say, hey, that guy knows what he's talking about. I'm going to do it. I would recommend that you find some other voices to listen to and do your own reading and your own research. But you would also please want to do that with your doctor. There's a reason why even some doctors recommend second opinions. 
because one set of eyes oftentimes isn't enough to find the truth. And ultimately, one of the things that I've learned, especially over the last couple of years of doing this since COVID and talking to people who have had real problems with COVID treatments, COVID vaccines, and things like that, is that many people went against what their gut was telling them and did what they were being, I I think, manipulated into, but certainly at least pressured into. And many people have paid a heavy price for that. So if you don't feel comfortable and confident doing what I'm recommending, you probably should look into it deeper before you do it. And the same could be said about your doctor or about the local news. So what I do is I simply share what I believe is truth. You investigate it and you do what you will with it. Okay, back to the statins. In 2019, a new study was released that wasn't shocking at all to a lot of us, but got the medical community into a bit of a tizzy. It found that high cholesterol does not shorten lifespan, that statins are essentially a waste of time, according to one of the researchers who was quoted. Previous studies have linked statins with an increased risk of diabetes. The study reviewed research of almost 70,000 people and found that elevated levels of bad cholesterol did not raise the risk of early death from cardiovascular disease in people over 60. The authors called the statin guidelines to be reviewed, or called for statin guidelines to be reviewed, claiming the benefits of statins are exaggerated. Not only did the study find a link between high cholesterol and early death, or sorry, find no link, no link between high cholesterol and early death. It also found that people with high, otherwise known as bad cholesterol, uh, low density, uh, LDL, like I said, otherwise known as bad cholesterol, which there's even questions about that, believe it or not, whether there is such a thing as bad cholesterol. That's another story for another day. But they found that people with high LDL actually lived longer and had fewer incidences of heart disease. Now, the target of statin drugs is LDL, and they want it lowered. But they found in this study of over 70,000 people that people with higher LDL actually had fewer incidences of heart disease. The co-author and vascular surgeon went on to say that cholesterol is vital for preventing cancer, muscle pain, infection, and other health disorders in older people. He said that statins are a waste of time for lowering cholesterol and that lifestyle changes are more effective for improving cardiovascular health. Naturally, the paper drew fire from its conclusions and was dismissed by other experts in the field. Statins, after all, are among the most commonly prescribed drugs. One in four Americans over the age of 40 takes a statin, and the drugs account for more than $20 billion in spending each year. And remember, almost a trillion dollars as of 2020. Perhaps it's past a trillion now. That $20 billion is probably not influencing any of these recommendations, right? I mean, clearly that's not enough money every single year to influence anyone to behave badly. According to the British Medical Journal, the researchers examined the effects of guideline changes on cardiovascular disease prevention in older people in Ireland from 1987 to 2016 and found that the proportion of over 50s who would have been eligible for statins increased from 8% based on the 1987 guidelines to 61% on the 2016 guidelines. So 8% of people as of 1987 in Ireland could be legally put on a statin drug based on the guidelines that the doctor could use. And then in 2016, that number was up to 61%. And it wasn't because people got higher cholesterol during that time. It was because more people were considered at risk because they kept lowering the bar. At one point, cholesterol was 250. Your total cholesterol was supposed to be at 250. And that was the quote-unquote safe number. Then it was 225. And then it was 200. I've still yet to see any evidence anywhere Not a single paper that I'm aware of exists, and I would love to have somebody bring one to me if it does exist, that indicates that cholesterol under 200 is safer and healthier than cholesterol under 225 or 250. I don't believe that research exists. 
It's a theory. Now, keep this in mind. When you jump, when you change the game by changing the rules of the game, and you all of a sudden take people and put, you go from putting 8% of people on statins to putting 61% of people on statins, something else changes. As you're adding more and more increasingly lower risk people to the treatment group, the number of people who would need to be treated to prevent one major cardiovascular event goes up substantially. It went from 40 people, meaning one out of every 40 people in 1987, one in every 40 got some benefit, in, in, and the benefit would be a reduction of risk of a cardiovascular event. One person didn't have a cardiovascular event based on a statin drug in 1987, but in Ireland in, 19, or in 2016, they had to treat one person, or sorry, 400 people for five years for one person to avoid a cardiovascular event. Now, I've read many studies and meta-analyses like this, where it says that anywhere from 200 to 400 people have to be treated with a statin for at least five years for one person to not have a cardiovascular event. So then the question is, well, as long as, I mean, are they completely safe? Are they 100% safe? Is nobody going to have a problem in that 400 people? But we're going to save one life, potentially? Well, if that was the case, then, okay, that's good. I, th- that might be worth it. One person, we, always, we all want to save a life, even if it's only one out of 400. That's better than none out of 400. But what if the other 399 people have potential side effects that are more damaging. So what are the side effects? Well, the biggest one is an increase in risk of diabetes that the FDA is actually admitted to now. And I've seen studies that show as high as a 40% increase in diabetes after 10 years on a statin drug. A 40% increase at risk of type 2 diabetes is not a small number. Diabetes, of course, then leads to cardiovascular disease, which is what these drugs are supposed to prevent in the first place. But in addition to diabetes, liver and kidney damage, muscle and nerve pain, a reduction in vitamin D synthesis from the sun, reduction of all steroid hormones in the body due to the fact that cholesterol is needed to produce these hormones, and maybe the one that I would be the most concerned about myself is the increased risk of dementia. Alzheimer's, after all, 25% of our total cholesterol is stored and used in the brain. In fact, 2% of the weight of your brain should be cholesterol. Now, let's jump to an article from Scientific American all the way back in the dark ages of 2010. In the brain, however, they say, cholesterol plays a crucial role in the formation of neuronal connections, the vital links that underlie memory and learning. Quick thinking and rapid reaction times depend on cholesterol, too, because the waxy molecules are the building blocks of the sheaths that insulate neurons and speed up electrical transmissions. We can't understand how a drug that affects such an important pathway would not have adverse reactions, says Ralph Edwards, former director of the World Health Organization's Drug Monitoring Center in Sweden. Two small trials published in 2000 and 2004 by Matthew Muldoon a clinical pharmacologist at the University of Pittsburgh, seemed to suggest a link between statins and cognitive problems. The first, which enrolled 209 high-cholesterol subjects, reported that participants taking placebo pills improved more on repeated tests of attention and reaction time taken over the course of six months. I want to repeat this. 209 high-cholesterol subjects reported that participants taking placebos improved more on repeated tests of attention and reaction time over the course of six months. This is presumably because they were getting better with practice as people typically do. However, subjects who were on statins did not show normal improvement, suggesting their learning was actually impaired. The second trial reported similar findings. A study in 2003 of 60 statin users who had reported memory problems to MedWatch, more than half said their symptoms improved when they stopped taking the drugs. Now, I could do three shows on statins and cholesterol, but this show isn't all about cholesterol. 
that's just the start. But before I get off this topic, I will mention one more thing that I kind of need to rant about. I don't watch much TV at all. I probably get it an hour or two a week, if that. But I did sit, sit down on Sunday with my son to watch some football. And before the game started, a commercial came on for a drug, of course, because, well, that's who funds television to a large degree. It's a drug called Lecvio, L-E-Q-V-I-O. And you get to use this injection twice a year along with your statin drug. Yay, a drug on top of a drug. What could possibly go wrong? We won't know for a decade how dangerous this drug or the combination of this drug with statins is. What we do know is that cholesterol is not the cause of heart disease. If it was, then it wouldn't take 400 people to be treated with a statin that does indeed reduce cholesterol very effectively to prevent just one cardiovascular event. The evidence is actually overwhelming. There have been dozens of studies that prove this, more so than the studies that prove the opposite. Statin drugs, and apparently Lecvio, do lower cholesterol, but do they prevent heart disease in healthy people? The evidence simply doesn't suggest that they do at all. As I mentioned earlier, I will do a part two episode here, and I'll give you ideas about what you can actually do to improve your heart health and your cardiovascular integrity. But I won't be suggesting a cholesterol drug. (laughs) Okay. All right. So next on the list, and I've got about five of them today. um, We did statins. I touched briefly on SSRIs, but I did a whole show on SSRIs a while back. But let's jump into one that, uh, frankly, I don't think I've ever talked about, not even once on Vitality Radio in 14 years. Corticosteroids. Uh, oh, before I get into it, though, I will remind you that if you have questions about what you hear, because I know uh, a lot of what I say uh, you're hearing while you're like driving down the road, you can't make notes or whatever. And I understand that completely because that's when I listen to podcasts. But if you have questions, just remember to call Vitality Nutrition. You can Google us and you'll find us in Bountiful, 801-292-6662. And if you uh, have any questions on anything for your healthcare needs, uh, that you think we might be able to help you with, we would love to do it at that number. You can also jump on vitalitynutrition.com. Okay. Corticosteroids recommended topically, orally, and inhaled, right? You may have had a steroid cream recommended, uh, for, you know, a case of the hives or maybe some eczema or psoriasis or some mystery rash that you don't know what it is. Uh, perhaps you've uh, dealt with asthma and uh, or, or have had a you know significant um, bronchitis or, or something like that, and they've recommended an inhaled steroid. Or perhaps you've had uh, some reason why there was sig- significant inflammation in the body and they recommended an oral steroid like prednisone. This class of drugs, I think, is often overlooked in terms of potential side effects and to me, in most cases, this class of drugs is just simply overprescribed. It's not because they don't work. In fact, in the case of asthma, uh, you have an asthma attack and you've got your inhaler handy, it can save your life. These are very effective drugs in many, many, many ways and in, for many different uh, conditions. But aside from inhaling them, which interestingly enough, actually the studies show most of what you inhale from an inhaled corticosteroid does stay just right in the respiratory system uh, and therefore doesn't act systemically. And so may actually be the safest approach that you can take if you're going to use a steroid of all. But the other forms, the topical and the oral, have a long list of side effects. And I think also a long list of potential alternatives that can be used. So let's talk about the side effects. This is from WebMD. Fluid retention. Oh, this is from, uh, this next section is short-term use, like within the first day, two, three, four, five, up to seven days. Fluid retention causing swelling in your lower legs, high blood pressure, problems with mood swings, memory, behavior, and other psychological effects such as confusion or delirium. That can happen in seven days. Upset stomach, weight gain with fat deposits in your abdomen, abdomen, your face, and the back of your neck. 
and taking oral steroids for longer term, you may also experience elevated pressure in the eyes, like glaucoma, clouding of the lens, like cataracts, a round face, known as moon face, high blood sugar, which can trigger or worsen diabetes, increased risks of infections, especially with common bacterial, viral, and fungal microorganisms, thinning bones, known as osteoporosis, and also fractures because of those thinning bones, suppressed adrenal gland hormone production that may result in a variety of signs and symptoms, including severe fatigue, loss of appetite, nausea, and muscle weakness, thin skin, bruising, and slower wound healing. Now, you know and I know that not everybody that uses one of these drugs is going to have a big laundry list of side effects. But what's interesting about corticosteroids, and the reason I decided to include it in this episode, is that it does seem that the longer you're on it, the more likely you are to have these side effects. And it also appears that if you're on it long enough, you will have some of these side effects. It's really just a matter of time. It's one of the reasons why doctors only want to give you one or two steroid injections, uh, cortisone injections in your you know, stiff shoulder or your arthritic knee, because they know that if they do too many of them, it's going to break down the tissue and cause more problems. The reason I think that steroids are so illogical in so many uh, instances is because they are really almost exclusively temporary relief. Now, that's great, again, if you're having an asthma attack. Temporary relief could save your life. It's not going to prevent the next asthma attack, but in that attack, it's great. But if you have a rash, you're probably not going to keel over from that. And even if you have significant pain that you might get prescribed a steroid for, it won't do anything to solve the underlying problem. And another thing that comes to mind, and, and, and maybe this is coming to your mind too, you'll have to, you'll have to tell me uh, if you get a chance to uh, uh, jump in the community and, and, and respond to what you thought of this show, which by the way, I love. I love the feedback. Even if it's not feedback, I love to hear. I love the feedback because it makes the show better. At least I hope it does. And that's my goal every single week is to make it better. So one of the things that comes to mind is this. If you start to see this, because now we've just talked about uh, statins, and now we're talking about steroids, and both of them increase the risk of diabetes. And diabetes is epidemic in this country. So what if someone's on a statin drug for five or ten years, and they also are being prescribed steroids, either long-term or intermittently? What does that combination do to increase the risk of diabetes? In fact, how many of these diseases that are on the rise in this country, autoimmune disease, diabetes, and so many others, are the net result of too many drugs for other problems, or at least where the drugs are a factor in that new illness? How many? Uh, it's not a question I know the answer to, but I certainly have some thoughts on it. Okay, so here's another thing to keep in mind. So if you're going to be on a long-term steroid, which a lot of people have been prescribed long-term steroids, then it says in, on WebMD that you should ask your doctor if you should, you should take calcium and vitamin D to prevent bone loss. Well, your doctor very likely will say yes. And then if you're not a well-informed individual, you may go to Costco and pick up calcium carbonate with vitamin D. And then if you go back and listen to episode 259, where I talk about the dangers of calcium carbonate and how it probably causes heart disease, I think, and this is my opinion, but there's some evidence to back it up, more than cholesterol does, then you may end up doubling down on your risk by trying to prevent one of the side effects of this drug. So... Steroids have their place, and in the short term, they can be relatively safe and quite effective, although not always. The biggest issue I have, like I said, is that they don't, they don't fix the underlying problem at all. They are a very, very short-term uh, symptom reliever, and let's just give an example. If you've got rheumatoid arthritis, they may prescribe prednisone, which reduces your immune response because rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease, and inflammation, and you might feel a lot better 
on prednisone than you did without. You, your knees might stop hurting. Your fingers might stop hurting. You might really like how you feel. But it isn't your immune system, and I'm going to repeat this, it is not your immune system that is at the root of your autoimmune disease. And anybody that's telling you otherwise is simply misinformed. Yes, your immune system is overactive, hyperactive even, but it is trying to get at a problem that has been caused by something else, oftentimes, if not always, originating in the gut. So by giving something that masks the symptoms, you're not solving the problem at all, and you're potentially allowing the problem to get worse under the surface. So my preference is to look at what's the actual root cause of this thing rather than what can we do to get on top of it in the short term. And of course, in the second episode, part two of this show, I will talk a lot about things that you can do naturally if you're dealing with issues that might come with a steroid uh, prescription. All right, next item benzos. Now, I'll touch on opiates in a moment, but first, it's their cousin, the benzodiazepines. I call them a cousin of opiates because I think they are two um, equally nasty classes of drugs, and for different reasons, but for the same reasons as well. They're both very, very dangerous. They both can absolutely mess with your head, and they're two of the most addictive classes of drugs on the market. Let's just talk about a couple of statistics here. Benzos such as Xanax, Ambien, Clonazepam, Lorazepam are responsible for 20% more ER visits annually than opiates are. How many ER visits is that? About 500,000 per year. That's a lot. Half a million people going to the ER from using benzodiazepines. In 2011, 127 million prescriptions of benzos were filled. In 2010, 125,000 people were taken to the emergency room just for Xanax overdose. In 2011, there were 40,000 confiscations of Xanax made by law enforcement. In 2010, there were 6,500 drug overdose deaths involving benzodiazepines. In 2000, or sorry, 20.4 million Americans ages 12 and older have misused a benzo, and 95% of hospital admissions for benzodiazepines reported additional substance abuse. So let's hear it from not my mouth this time, but from a doctor's mouth, a doctor who was a self-described big promoter of benzos when they first came out in the 60s. This doctor's name is Dr. Alan Francis, and I'm going to give you his uh, a little bit of his... uh, bio here, because this is a guy who comes straight from pure medicine uh, in the modern medicine world. Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and former chair at Duke University. He was previously the chair of the DSM-4 task force and played an instrumental role in preparation of the DSM-3. Those are the big red books that doctors use, psychiatrists in particular, to diagnose mental illness. So this guy is in the thick of it. He was described by the New York Times as the most powerful psychiatrist in America and is the author of the internationally best-selling book, Saving Normal, winner of three book awards. According to Dr. Francis, benzos would be fine for occasional as-needed use in times of special stress or insomnia. But since you can't predict who will get hooked, it is wise not to try them at all for this purpose, he says. In my opinion, and again, this is his opinion, not mine. In my opinion, all of the legitimate indications for benzos are very short-term. However, in real life, most people take them long-term, in doses high enough to be addicting and for the wrong reasons. Benzo popularity, he continues, derives from the drug's ability to quickly relieve anxiety, reduce worry, help people relax, and lubricate social anxiety. Kind of like drinking alcohol, but in a convenient pill form. Doctors love prescribing benzos because it's the most efficient way to get a complaining patient out of the office in the shortest period of time. This is still him talking, not me. The patient is very satisfied at the moment, but may go on to develop a devastating addiction. People love taking them, but once they're hooked, they can't stop. In short, benzos are very easy to get on 
but almost impossible to get off. Now, benzos cause harm in three ways. The most dramatic dangers come in the form of deadly overdoses. Between 1996 and 2013, uh, the death rate from benzo overdoses exploded by more than 500% and are now involved in more than 30% of all overdose deaths, usually in combination with either opioids or alcohol. Second on the list of harms are the painful and dangerous withdrawal symptoms that foster addiction. Benzo withdrawal is a beast, often terrifying, sometimes dangerous, and almost always drawn out over a long period of time. The anxiety and panic experienced by people trying to stop benzos is usually much worse than the anxiety and panic that initiated their original use. Other common symptoms are irritability, insomnia, tremors, distractibility, sweating, and confusion. At the extreme, if doses were high and discontinuation is quick, the symptoms resemble alcoholic delirium with hallucinations, psychosis, seizures, and the risk of death. Withdrawal is made even more difficult as is common, oh sorry, if as is common, benzo dependence is complicated by concomitant abuse of alcohol and or opioids or other drugs. Most people fail in their first attempt at withdrawal, but success rates increase if the withdrawal is done very gradually over a period of many months. Careful medical supervision is always a must. And the third and most insidious but still very damaging are the day-to-day impacts on brain functioning. Ongoing benzo use can be devastating, especially in the elderly, who bizarrely is the largest group that benzo prescriptions are given to. If you meet an elderly patient who seems dopey, confused, has memory loss, slurred speech, and poor balance, your first thought should be benzo side effects, not Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Many elders begin their downward spiral to disability and death after a benzo-induced fall that results in broken hips, concussions, or subdermal hematomas. Benzos are also a major risk factor for car and machine accidents. Now, all of that came from Dr. Francis, a specialist in psychiatry and psychiatric medicine, all about benzos. So, enough said on that. I will go into, in part two, of this episode. I'll talk about alternatives to benzos as well. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I think you'll, uh, you'll really enjoy that information, especially if you're someone who's considered doing benzos or is currently using them and you're looking for alternatives. We'll get into that. But now we have three drugs we've talked about. We talked about statins. We talked about steroids, corticosteroids, and then benzodiazepines. And all three of them have the potential to create mental health issues, cognitive function issues, and dementia-like side effects. So I ask again, what if you're on a benzo to help you sleep or to help with your anxiety, you're on a statin drug to help with your cholesterol levels, and maybe you're also being prescribed a steroid for something else? What happens when that's all stacked together? What do the side effects look like then? Okay, let's talk about opioids for just a moment. I'm not not going to go into all the horror stories here because I'm going to run out of time. And I think unlike some of these other meds, opioid addiction and danger awareness is pretty high. I think you probably know that it's going on out there. But just a word of caution and I guess a little mini rant again. What I will say is the medical establishment just simply isn't doing their part to stop this issue. I know and love people who have been lost to opioids. I know and love people who thankfully are still here after battling addiction to opioids. And I recently, myself, went in and did something I almost never do, and that is saw a doctor. I needed a procedure done on my hip. I have a uh, degenerative hip issue that is uh, has to do with my the genetic disproportion of my hip socket or something like that. I can't remember what the actual technical terms are, but I had some issues going on, pretty significant ones. So I went into an orthopedist. This guy's considered one of the best, not only in the state, but in the world, uh, and uh, is very, very good at what he does. And after the procedure, 
I was given two prescriptions for two different opiates. One was stronger and the other one was milder. I was told to use the strong ones until I didn't need them and then use the weaker ones until I didn't need those and then go to Tylenol and ibuprofen. I was not told anything about potential side effects. There was zero mention of possible addiction. I wasn't asked if I had been addicted to these drugs in the past. And I was given a prescription that had enough pills to last me at least three times longer than they said I would probably need. Opioids are a really nasty thing. They are prescribed for all kinds of different pains by all types of different docs, GPs, orthopedists, dentists, and many others. It's quite possible you could be prescribed one by two different docs even at once without them knowing it. After all, I had a tooth issue the week before I went to the orthopedic surgeon, and my dentist, who knows I won't use an opiate for a dental pain, didn't prescribe one for me, but with what he did, it would have been a typical prescription he could have given. I could have been given that, and then a week later, given these other two opioids, opioids and I not ever been told that I should be aware or concerned about it. For short-term pain relief, especially after a significant injury or surgery, I see the point of opiates. They do work in the short term, but they must be monitored so carefully. Really, other than end of life, they should be an absolute last resort. And yet they are still prescribed willy-nilly by most physicians, and pharma just keeps telling us they're safer than you think. All right, speaking of dentists, let's talk about fluoride. Now, fluoride you might not even think of as a drug, but yeah, it's a drug. Maybe um, it's been prescribed for your kids in a pill form. Maybe it's been prescribed by your dentist in a super high concentration in a mouthwash because you got real significant gingivitis or something like that. But it is a drug, uh, and I want to read just a few statements uh, that I found online that are evidence of why I think fluoride is something we should be paying attention to as well. According to the CDC, there are three main mechanisms by which topical fluoride can prevent decay. So this would be on a toothbrush or in a mouthwash or something like that. It can enhance remineralization of carious lesions, otherwise known as cavities, before they become uh, full-blown cavities. Okay, So the beginning of a cavity can potentially be averted through fluoride topically. They can inhibit demineralization and uh, generally. And then number three is they poison the enzymes in the oral sorry, bacteria that produces the acids that erodes, erode the teeth. So those are the three things Centers for Disease Control, at least, says fluoride can do. Importantly, neither of these three mechanisms depends on teeth having high concentrations of fluoride in their internal matrix. Accordingly, each of the three topical mechanisms can fully occur without a person swallowing a single drop of fluoride in their entire life. Now, if that's all true, then it seems perhaps that fluoride does not have a place in medicine other than in the mouth, topically, not orally like you swallow it. And yet it's in most of the water in this country, 73%, I believe. Whereas throughout almost all of Europe and Asia, fluoridation doesn't happen. There are only a few countries that do it at all, and most of them do it a little in uh, a very few places. So let's talk about the implications of fluoride when it's done internally. There's a doctor named Dr. Arvid Carlson, and he actually uh, was a recipient of the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology. Uh, and when he learned and did his research on topical fluoride, he said, in pharmacology, if the effect is local, it's, of course, absolutely awkward to use it in any other way than as a local topical treatment. I mean, this is obvious, he says. You have the teeth there. They're available for you. Why drink this stuff? I see no reason at all for giving it to anyone other than locally. It is telling, for example, that fluoride, a powerful poison of enzymes, works topically in part by poisoning enzymes in the bacteria. While poisoning enzymes in oral bacteria may lead to a desirable result vis-a-vis vis -vis teeth, 
poisoning enzymes elsewhere in the body could lead to a host of undesirable results. This, in fact, is one of the reasons why some of the earliest opponents to fluoridation were biochemists, as they were familiar with the use of fluoride to inhibit enzymes in the laboratory and worried about the potential for fluoride to inhibit enzymes in the body. As noted by Dr. James Sumner, a Nobel laureate biochemist at Cornell University, he says, we ought to go slowly with water fluoridation. Everybody knows fluorine and fluorides are very poisonous substances. We use them in enzyme chemistry to poison enzymes, those vital agents in the human body. That is the reason things are poisoned, because the enzymes are poisoned, and that is why animals and plants die. Did you know that there's never been a single randomized controlled trial to demonstrate fluoridation's effectiveness or safety? Despite the fact that fluoride has been added to community water supplies for over 60 years, there have been no randomized trials of water fluoridation. Randomized trials, of course, are the standard method for determining the safety and effectiveness of any purportedly beneficial medical treatment. In, two, in the year 2000, the British government's York Review could not give a single fluoridation trial a grade A classification, despite over 50 years of research. And the U.S. Food and Drug Administration continues to classify fluoride as an unapproved new drug. And here we go. Now, I want you to hearken back. And if you haven't been on steroids or statins or fluoride or uh, benzos, you should be able to go all the way back to the beginning of the show with me when I talked about statins causing mental impairment, potentially. And then we found out that benzos cause mental impairment, potentially. And we found out that corticosteroids cause mental impairment, potentially. Well, fluoride, fluoride may damage the brain. According to the National Research Council in 2006, it is apparent that fluorides have the ability to interfere with the functions of the brain. In a review of the literature commissioned by the Environmental Protection Agency, fluoride has been listed among about 100 chemicals for which there is substantial evidence of developmental neurotoxicity. Animal experiments show that fluoride accumulates in the brain and alters mental behavior in a manner consistent with a neurotoxic agent. Fluoride may lower the IQ. There have been now 33 studies from China, Iran, India, and Mexico that have reported an association between fluoride exposure and reduced IQ. Now, I could go on and on. There are dozens and dozens of additional studies shedding light on the insanity that is known as water fluoridation. Needless to say, I suggest you don't drink it or swallow a pill ever. Tap water is full of so many things you don't want in your body. Fluoride might be the number one of those, along with chlorine and various other things. But yeah, it there's the, the research simply doesn't back it up. It makes no sense to ingest the stuff, no matter how I what I read or what I see or what evidence somebody tries to bring me on this topic. It is just overwhelmingly obvious to me that fluoridation of the water is bad for you. I didn't even go through all of the potential side effects. Hip fracture risk is higher. Fluorosis is higher. All kinds of things. It's not good. But I will go into things that you can do to enhance your oral health, everything from the oral microbiome, uh, which I actually also believe fluoride disrupts, to uh, general health of the gums, the teeth, and so on in part two of this episode. Now, I want to remind you that I am not a doctor or a dentist or any kind of licensed practitioner of anything. I am a podcaster and a health food store owner. In fact, I get in trouble sometimes with people who think I am complicit in the deaths of thousands for spreading misinformed opinions. Yeah, more than one person has told me something like that, <laughs> and that's okay, because I believe in what I do, and I'm happy to share it, even if not everybody's happy to hear it. I'll let you decide, because unlike our government and possibly your doctor, I believe that you are capable of making a well-thought-out and informed decision about your health and that you should have that right. I hope this episode was helpful. I am constantly alarmed when my customers at Vitality walk in and tell me that they are on a statin or an SSRI or a benzo or give their kids fluoride tablets, etc. 
So I wanted to highlight some of the many issues with these all too common drugs. I'll do a part two within a couple of weeks. I do have a vacation planned next week, so I'm not exactly sure how my recording schedule is going to work out, but I do know what's on tap, and I'll share that with you right now. The many amazing benefits of aloe vera juice. This one I've already recorded with Karen Masterson. I think it's really, really good information. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And then I'm going to talk to one of the dearest people in my whole life about her journey from depression and anxiety diagnoses to bipolar, to a bipolar diagnosis, then opiate addiction and even a suicide attempt to a life of hope and health through natural means. Her story is a powerful one and she is an absolute dynamo, whether she recognizes it or not. And then, of course, part two of this show will come up in the next couple of weeks as well. I'm also working on one more episode of 10 more cheap or free things that you can do to improve your health. So a lot of good stuff coming up. Please join the Vitality Radio listener community. If you're interested in this stuff and you like to share great information and learn great information, aside from what's available here on the podcast, uh, go to Facebook and sign up for the Vitality Radio listeners community. And remember, if you're looking for a deal, we got a couple of good ones at Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful and also online at VitalityNutrition.com, the Nordic Naturals gummies are on sale for 30% off. We've never had them cheaper than 20% off before. And Life Seasons, the entire line, 25% off this whole month. Thank you so much for listening to me. If you have questions, call us 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Or chat with us online at vitalitynutrition.com. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been another episode of Vitality Radio. been listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week in the meantime jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it vitality radio is researched and written by jared st Clair. our awesome music is by brian bob young support vitality radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on apple podcasts youtube or your favorite podcast source don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. The FDA has not evaluated this podcast. This podcast is provided with the understanding that information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for care by a medical professional. Thank you.